to What the Fertility Season 2. Today we are sitting down with Lisa McCarty, a women's health advocate and IVF mom of two. Lisa's journey to motherhood includes eight years of off-and-on fertility treatment, recurrent miscarriage, and a diagnosis of Asherman syndrome. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I know we're so excited to have you on and just hear about your whole journey. I know it's been a long one. So whenever you're ready, just kind of start from the beginning and let us know how it all started. Sure. So, um, around age 29, I, um, essentially went off of birth control and I had been on birth control about 15 years and I decided that I didn't want to take it anymore. And so, um, I didn't have a period for a few years and, so we essentially went to, I was referred by my OB to go see an endocrinologist. And in that discussion with the endocrinologist, they told me that because I wasn't ovulating and I had no period that obviously I couldn't get pregnant. And so um, we determined at that time to restart birth control. And um, obviously we did all the testing and everything before beginning that process. And through, um, through the process, the beginning of the process of an infertility and, and talking with my endocrinologist, they told me that um, I had post, post pill amenorrhea. That was the reason why my period stopped. And we restarted birth control and went through a few cycles of IUI. And I think it was around three or four. And those were negative. I was not able to um, get pregnant with that. And I knew it was going to be a challenging process based on the fact that I didn't have a period and my body obviously wasn't resetting on its own. And so um, we started doing some medication. Um, my endocrinologist told me at the end of those IUIs that were all negative, that I was a good candidate for IVF. And so I started doing um, IVF and actually got pregnant. Um, in my vision, it was, I was lucky uh, because I got pregnant on the first try of IVF, but this was after almost two and a half, three years of fertility treatment already. So, you know, we tried timed intercourse, we tried IUI and none of those worked for us. So essentially um, IVF, I got pregnant on the first try and um, had my first child at 33 and um, she is actually now 10, which is crazy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know it feels like a million years ago, but it also feels like yesterday too, because you know, it was almost a decade of my life. Um, so we waited about a year and a half or so. And then, you know, I kind of was in that new motherhood journey and then decided, you know, that light switch went off again and decided I wanted to have another. And I thought we would, you know, have a, a positive experience because of IVF working before. And unfortunately that was the opposite of what happened. Um, so we proceeded to, um, use the remaining embryos. So I'll back up a second. So with my first, um, when we went through IVF, uh, obviously prior to that, we did the, you know, the stimulation and retrieval, and I was able to get seven embryos. So oh, wow. when we, which is wonderful. I mean, yeah. I was so grateful. Um, and so I was, I had essentially, we used the one, I got pregnant with that and have my daughter. And then um, we had six remaining. So when we began the process again, about a year and a half later, um, I was, 
working with six embryos essentially. And we went through all of those and they were all negative. Um, I was not able to get pregnant again easily. It was not what I thought it would be. And so we had to do another round of stimulation and retrieval, and I was able to get another seven embryos. And so at this point we are, and I'm calculating timeframe, but I think it was around um, the third year of fertility treatment at this point, because in that final year, um, you know, we went through another, so let me calculate. So in the, in the third year of treatment, we used the, and I, I basically like mapped this out, but it was a total of seven embryos, two were negative, And then the final year of treatment, it was four losses in a row. And so it was at that point, I was, you know, obviously devastated and we would go through the, the process as you guys know really well, it's, you know, exhausting, you're doing stimulation and, um, and you're doing the trigger shot and then you do the transfer and then you do the two week wait and it's such a process. Mm -hmm. And it felt so, you know, hopeful at that point. And then we got the positive test and then every time during those four losses, it was around five to seven weeks on average. And so they would call, it was a positive test. And then I would go back for the second blood work and the numbers were not doubling. And so the first loss was approximately five and a half weeks. And I didn't have much bleeding. It was not terrible from my perspective. I, I think I had become sort of desensitized at this point, you know, when you, you start going through this process, it's so hopeful and, you know, beautiful. And then <laughs> it's exhausting and you just become like on autopilot. Um, and then the second, the second loss, I did have a little bit of bleeding. And then the third loss was probably one of the worst, um, because it was unexpected. It was around seven weeks we did have doubling on the second blood work and then the third blood work, the numbers went down. And I remember my nurse calling me saying, I don't know what's happening. You know, even the nurse was confused. She's like, you know, we were on such a good track. I, I thought for sure this was the one. And, you know, they're always so hopeful for you. Um, that's why they do what they do. And it's, it's just a, you know, a bond between you and this person <laughs> that you're, you know, they're going through your journey with you. And um, anyway, so unfortunately that was another loss and um, I had a lot of bleeding on that one. And it was really one of those moments where I'm like, okay, something isn't working. Mm -hmm. And so the endocrinologist that I was working with said, okay, um, you know, we're going to do this again. This it has to be the one. And I think at this point we even did ERA before the transfer. Um, we were trying to figure out like, is it the timing? Is it the medication? Let's try everything. Now, Lisa, um, I wanted to just say one, I'm so sorry yeah. for your losses. Um, that's Thank you. horrible. And Kat can, you know, talk more about reoccurrent loss. Um, I've, yeah. I had one miscarriage, but not multiples back to back like that. Yeah. Well, um, if you've had any losses, it's all 
it's oh, all exhausting. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. I just had a question. Were any of your embryos tested prior or did you, uh, did yeah. you not, did you test them at all or? Yeah. Um, so for the first round of the seven embryos on our first, um, rounds of IVF, no, those were not tested. And then the second rounds, um, of the set, second set of seven, um, I did have those tested, which is also why I think in addition to the medications that they were giving us changing protocol and, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at me, if you will, um, they didn't understand why it was happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we did ERA ERA just before, I want to say it was just before the last um, loss. And at that point, you know, my endocrinologist was like, we've, you know, maybe it's the timing, maybe we need to, you know, change things up again. And, um, and so we did it again. And then it was that final loss. um, And I, I still recall that moment. It's still in my mind years later, um, you know, I'm laying on the bathroom floor and crying and it was just debilitating and also disheartening because it sort of felt like all of these positive things that I've been trying to do, you know, yoga and meditation and taking walks and, you know, wearing my good vibes only shirt for every single appointment, (laughs) you know, Um, I had hoped that it would just figure itself out. And unfortunately that's not what happened. Um, and so we took a break after the fourth loss, you know, my husband obviously also was, um, heartbroken over this. He had the hope that we would just get pregnant, you know, like everyone else, if you will, you know, the people around us who just, you know, I have many friends who have multiple kids and they just, you know, like their husbands looked at them and they got pregnant, you know? Um, and you know, I always just wanted to be that person and I knew it wouldn't, would not be that easy for us, obviously after this length of time, because at this point it had been, you know, eight years of this. Um, and so it just felt like a, a total, you know, exhaustive process. And so when we had that last loss, I'm laying on the floor and thinking, you know, something has to change something must be going on. Like, you know, I could feel it in my gut that something was wrong. Um, And so we went back to my endocrinologist and he said to me, in my 30 years of practice, I have seen a lot of client, uh, you know, a lot of patients and I have never seen a case like yours. Oh my And, you know, when the endocrinologist says that to you, you think to yourself, that's not a good sign, you know? Right. You're like, I don't want you to tell me that. I don't, right. I don't want to be that person. (laughs) Um, you know, and, and there's so many things that we see on the internet these days, you know, like, you know, I didn't choose infertility Infertility chose me, you know, this is not, this is not what I wanted. And so, so we, we sat down and we had a, a conversation about it. And I basically, said to him, you know, what are my options here? Like I have one embryo left at this point, you know, we've used them all. It's either been negative or it's been a loss. And we had had four losses in a row in one year. And so like, clearly there's something happening. And he said to me, I think you need to see a specialist. And I'm like, are you the specialist? (laughs) You know, this is, this feels to me um, like a confusing moment. I, I just don't understand who else there could be besides you. 
you know, and he's been doing this for so long, I thought for sure he would have the answer. So he referred me to someone who is an OB as well as a gynecological surgeon. Um, and he said, this person specializes in a lot of things. And I'll actually give you the list of things that this person um, specializes in. And it's kind of amazing that one doctor knows this much about all these things, but endo endometriosis, fibroids, heavy menstrual bleeding, um, pelvic pain, PID, which I believe is pelvic inflammatory disease, and then recurrent loss. And that's why he sent me to him. So it took me three months to get this appointment. And, you know, at this point I'm like, can we just have another baby? You know, like, I don't want more delays in my process. There's already a lot of waiting in, in fertility as it is and going through fertility treatment. And so we finally got in with him. You know, I, I, I think I must've called every day for like two weeks straight trying to get a cancellation. Um, and the front desk person was just the kindest person on earth. She was like, she totally understood you know, obviously she probably gets a lot of these calls, you know, women hoping to get in with him. And um, so I met with him and we sat down and we did, you know, sort of a history of all of the things that have happened. You know, my um, post-pillamenorrhea, restarting birth control, going through all the, you know, IUIs and IVF, and then having multiple I actually had multiple hysteroscopies during the process of, um, you know, beginning of the process of uh, stimulation and all that. Like we had to do hysteroscopies in between. Um, and I don't even remember why. I just remember we had so many procedures. This all sort of feels like a blur at this point. Um, but anyway, we sat down, we talked about my medical history and all the things I had gone through. And then specifically, um, the recurrent loss. And with my daughter also, I did have a complication um, in delivery. And so that also played into it. And that complication, so she actually came three weeks early. So, and she was fine, everything was fine. But I had a retained placenta. Um, are you guys familiar with that? I am. I not am. Okay. Yeah, I am. So you like me? Yeah, you likely had to have a DNC, I'm assuming. I did. Yeah. So they spent around 40, the doctor spent about 45 minutes, you know, without being completely graphic, you know, arm up inside trying to get this thing out manually. I don't honestly know why it took so long for them to decide to do a DNC. But at that time, that's, she was, I think, hoping to avoid that situation and to get it out naturally. Um, but it just wasn't happening. I think to my understanding in that situation, um, I had a slight um, placenta previa during pregnancy. And I believe that that can sometimes predispose you to retain placenta, but I'm not a medical doctor. This is based on my own experiences, of course. Um, that's what they told me that it's possible that that was why it would happen. But, you know, sometimes they just don't know. So yes, they did an emergency DNC after 45 minutes. I had lost a lot of blood. I, I hemorrhaged a lot of blood. And so that was not only traumatic for me, but also to my uterus, apparently. Um, and so when I went to this appointment with the specialist, he said to me, well, you have a history of a DNC, emergency DNC, and for recurrent miscarriages. So that makes me think 
you may have something called Asherman syndrome. And I looked at him like, you know, he had two heads because I had never heard this phrase before. And are you guys familiar with Asherman's at all? Have you guys talked about that or experienced it? I know we don't, I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast yet. Right, Kat? Yeah. Yeah. I know one person had just, I think we had just talked about it, not that they were diagnosed with it and and they weren't super familiar with it. So I'm very excited to get into this. Um, I personally was just because like you, Lisa, um, I was searching for everything and anything that could potentially be the cause. And um, I don't know the timeline in terms of years that our fertility journeys kind of align, but um, I would say in like 20, 2021, uh, 2020, 2021, um, it was a little bit maybe more common than um, eight years ago in your fertility treatment. And um, it's definitely, it's definitely something that they that reproductive endocrinologists and OBGYNs do not talk to you about. It's more yeah. Google, a Google thing. <laughs> right, exactly. And I, I was actually researching for a conversation because I wanted to make sure, you know, all my sort of facts were straight based on my conversation with my doctor. And what I learned was that it's one of the most underdiagnosed conditions um, for women. And although, um, and I'll I'll give you some basic stats just sort of for context, but 40% of women who have had a DNC apparently have or can have Asherman syndrome um, because of the sort of trauma to the uterus during a DNC, because they're essentially scraping the lining, the endometrial lining of the uterus that can cause trauma and therefore ultimately cause scarring. And so, and I'll give a quick summary of what Asherman's is. So Asherman's is basically in simple, you know, terms, a buildup of scarring in the uterus. And it only, it almost becomes so web-like, cobweb-like, like you imagine like a spider web. It sounds it's totally yeah. strange, but yeah, it, I visually saw it on the camera and I'll, I'll get into that in a minute, but, um, so we, we discussed what Asherman's was, and he said in simple terms, Asherman's is the buildup of scarring in the uterus, and it can actually cause the uterus to be smaller because mm-hmm. it's essentially consumed by this scarring. And it can occur in, in sort of a small way or a moderate way or a severe way. And in my case, it ended up being moderate, um, which was you know a significant amount of the uterus covered in scarring. Yeah. And, and so- and- if just to, to go a little bit deeper on that, and maybe you were getting there. So the, the moderate, when you're saying like the moderately covered and scarring. So when a, um, embryo tries to implant and if it specifically chooses that spot of the uterus, it's uh, pretty much immediate reoccurring loss. Yes. And that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is, um, unfortunately in my case, I had such a significant amount of scarring. And it was that particular location where the embryo was trying to implant. Wow. And yeah. Which is just, it's all, it's like fascinating at the same time as it is devastating because, you know, it's something you, and, and you guys know this all too well. Also, you know, in infertility, you have zero control over anything. Um, and it's, it's very frustrating in so many moments, but especially when it came to this, because, you know, I know, Catherine, that you had six losses, which I am so sorry that you went through that too, because I, I can't imagine. And, you know, both of you, it's (laughs) anyone who has had one loss, it's, it's too many, you know, nobody should have to go through this. Um, But to go through 
you know, four losses or six losses or 12, you know, it, it's all the same. It's, it's, it's awful. Um, it yeah. And, and to, and I don't want to interrupt you, but this is just the perfect time to ask the question. Um, we, we did the Q and a on Instagram yesterday yeah. and, um, one of, we got a good amount of responses. Um, Great. one of the questions, yeah. One of the questions was like, is there anything you would change now? And I just, I think this is the perfect spot to advocate for, um, this type of, and I'd love to hear your perspective of how they even check this. But I know when I was going through my losses, knowing about Asherman syndrome from the very beginning, I elected and, you know, it was, it was difficult, but I elected not to have a DNC for the majority of my miscarriages. So out of the six, I only had one DNC and the Mm -hmm. true purpose behind that was I was really concerned about Asherman syndrome, especially because I was like, well, if I have another miscarriage and another, and sometimes you can't elect out of a DNC depending on how far along you are. Right. So when I was in that position where I could take the side attack or um, the misoprostol or or try to let it naturally miscarry, that was always my first line of line of um, not defense. But I was like, hey, let me try this first to help yeah. protect the health of my my uterine lining. But um, she asked, is there anything you would change now, knowing what you know? um, since you had your diagnosis? Yeah. You know, um, that's really interesting. I didn't know about it. And so obviously if I had the choice, um, in my cases, I certainly would have done the same. I think that's wonderful that you knew about it. Uh, you were so proactive. Um, I would say what I, you know, based on what I know now, um, you know, if I was having recurrent, if, if I knew about Asherman's, um, I would say if I was having recurrent miscarriage, even maybe after the second, I would have said to my doctor, is it possible that there's some underlying situation that could be contributing to this besides the medication, besides the protocol, you know, or have we thought of everything here? And I would have pushed back, but because I didn't know that that was even an option, um, you know, I, I regret that now, but yes, I, I would do that differently. I think I would have spoken up sooner um, and advocated for myself to say, you know, what else have we not thought of? Um, because I have been, you know, the complicated case, I think since the beginning, um, yeah. you know, think a lot of things that, that worked for so many other people that I knew going through this didn't work for me. Um, and so that's, that's a really great question. Um, I did actually in my research find that there were two sort of points of information to keep in mind. And, you know, I'm hopeful people will keep listening through this entire episode because I have so much more to share, but the two sort of points of data um, that I found was number one, if you're unable to get pregnant for one year or carry to term, then you should talk to your doctor, your endocrinologist, your specialist um, about what's happening. And that, it, you know, ask the question about Asherman's, is this possible that that's what I could have? And then if you're over the age of 35 and you're having, and it's been more than six months of this recurrent loss or unable to get pe- pregnant. So it's over the age of 35, it's only six months versus a year um, for everyone else that are under the age of 35. So that's 
That's wonderful statistics and like just kind of helping. So that honestly aligns with somebody else's question of like, what's one thing I could do to get started in the right direction after multiple losses? So thanks for answering that. Uh, I think my question to you, because I did ask those questions and the feedback I received was, oh, that's just in 1% of patients. And I know that those are not the correct statistics. And I I think- Um, you're highly aware of that too. Do you mind sharing, I guess, number one, how you were officially diagnosed, like through, was it through a hysteroscopy or I guess for listeners, like how they could push and say, okay, well, what if I think I'm the 1%, can you do X, Y, Z to ensure that I'm, I do not have it? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was meeting with, uh, the specialist, uh, our initial discussion was in the office, um, just a sit down conversation. We talked about, as I said, my, um, you know, medical history and specifically around fertility treatment and also my, the DNC that I had after my daughter. Um, and then obviously the four miscarriages. So we did that. And then they did a physical exam. Uh, he did a physical exam and then, um, determined at that point, he said, there's a chance you might have Asherman syndrome. So the next step was to get on his calendar, which unfortunately took, I think like another two months to get on his calendar. So it's a lot of waiting with these types of specialists, unfortunately, but if you can find the one, you know, that you can get in with or just keep calling to get cancellations like I did. Um, So I had, yes, I had a physical, um, you know, exam in the initial appointment. And then we did a hysteroscopy, which was basically supposed to be an evaluation as well as treatment if there was scarring. And so, because at that point, obviously he didn't know he needed to go in to to see. And so when I went in for that appointment, it was an in-office, it's essentially called an outpatient procedure, but it's in a hospital. So there's like, you know, a a curtain that they pull back um, in the exam room with a door um, and you sit in one of those, um, you know, actual like procedure chairs. It almost reminds me of like a dentist chair that they tip back and they make you scoot all the way to the end. Um, They have a camera and um, essentially like a a video screen, sorry, not a camera, a video screen um, that's adjacent to the chair. And he has like this long, it almost reminds me of like a guitar case of instruments. Um, And so I don't know how specific you want me to get into with detail, but I can give you like the information of the actual procedure. Do you want me to do that or is that okay? Yeah, I, I think uh, listeners love, especially cause it's a scary process. And yeah, even- and I think <laughs> just sort of rationalizing that fear, like it's it's actually not as bad as it sounds. Um, but I would say, uh, so they did advise me prior to this procedure, by the way, um, to take some Advil cause it is like an awake outpatient procedure. So you do actually see what's happening while it happens versus a typical hysteroscopy that, for example, like I did during my treatment, um, where they put you to sleep and bring you into a, like a surgical, you know, ER kind of, or OR rather, um, situation. So, so, you know, they have you scoot all the way down to the end of the chair. He pulls out his instrument and it was roughly like, it sounds, you know, sort of, um, crazy, but it was around 16 inches long. The wow. I know. Because I, you're, you're, I, was, I don't I know. I was that talking to my husband about this last night and he's like, that can't be right. <laughs> um, no, but really like it's, it, but it's tiny. It's a tiny in width. Like it was probably around 
one and a half to three millimeters in like thickness. So it's really, really thin, like a toothpick, almost you know, maybe a little bit thicker. Um, and it's essentially like, um, there's like a handle on the end and then um, it goes really, really long. And on the end of that, there's a scope. And I wanna say that maybe he had a camera and a lengthy scissors too. They call it like a, um, it's essentially like a forcep, like that they would, like a, a tinier version on the end of it of what you use like in childbirth. Yep. Um, so anyway, it's this long instrument and they basically, you know, they say it's, it's almost like um, setting you up for like an OB exam. You know, they have to kind of get everything set up and you, you put your legs up in the stirrups. It's, it's sort of bizarre because you, you feel like you're going to have like a standard OB exam and then it's way more than that. Um, so, so they, he puts the instrument up inside and essentially when they get to the top, you can actually watch while they're doing this. You could see on camera, on video. And if you actually just Google this, you know, Google is not always your friend, but in this case, like if you want to actually see like what you see um, before an appointment or something, um, you could see the inside of the uterus. And I remember that first appointment when he was doing this sort of evaluation, hysteroscopy, he said to me, I'm not sure what we're going to see, but let's take a look. And if there's anything there, I'm going to take it out. And I said, okay, sounds good. So, um, you know, I think he did remind me to kind of take a deep breath and like relax. And, and that was it. There was really not that much discomfort. So I would like to sort of reassure listeners to say, if you are going to have this done or you're concerned that that may be your issue, like don't freak out. It's really, it's not a big deal. If you take that, you know, sort of Motrin or, you know, anti-inflammatory beforehand, and it makes it a little bit less uncomfortable. Um, so they, while they got up to the, you know, the top of the uterus and they're looking around, he sees at the top, they call it the fundus, which is the top of the uterus. There was a significant amount of scarring. And he said to me, yes, you have scarring and you have a lot and I need to take it out. And, you know, like, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm fine. And so he took it out and it took probably the entire procedure itself probably took, I don't know, 30 minutes. But that's from the time that they're kind of setting you up and getting you, you know, comfortable in the chair to the end where, you know, they have you, um, I think they actually have you sit up kind of slowly because sometimes there can be a little bit of bleeding afterward, but it was very minimal. Um, they, and then at the end of this, you know, he came in once I was kind of dressed and, and talked to me and said, here's what's happening. You do have Asherman syndrome. We've confirmed that it's pretty moderate. Um, which is, you know, a, a good amount of scarring in the uterus. And specifically, he did say, I do think that is what is causing your recurrent pregnancy loss. And I was like thinking, oh my God, this is, <laughs> you know, this is going to be the person that helps me. He's going to figure this out. Um, he did say at this point though, he said, look, here's what I recommend. You know, I've done the first treatment. I think you need to come back for three more. And so we did a total of four of these. Wow. Um, and they separate them by two weeks. And during that two week period, you take something called, um, I, I think it's an, it's essentially like an estrogen, but I forgot like the exact name of the medication, but it's, I believe it was oral. Um, in some cases they'll do like a vaginal version. Um, and essentially what that estrogen does during that two week kind of 
healing period is to heal the endometrial lining and in hopes to not have recurrent that piece that he took out or that section of scarring um, to come back. That's so Lisa, what, I, thank yeah. you for saying that because it's, so I'm listening, right? And it's like, yeah. okay, so right. Ashland is caused through, you right. know, I don't want to say surgical intervention, but no, you're right. Surgical intervention, but then the only way to get rid of it is that. So I think to take it out, right? Yeah, it's so important that you're sharing. I know it sort of sounds like counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, Yeah, but but, it does make sense that they're like trying to make sure. Honestly, like my daughter just had not just, but she had a lip and a tongue tie, and it was the same thing. Like they sipped it, but there was all this in between to make sure that it didn't scar or come back again, which would be the same with our. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many sort of situations like that where there's like some kind of scarring and then you're concerned about a recurrence for sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a valid concern. Um, Yeah. So that was certainly my question too. Like, how do you know it's not going to come back? And he said, well, we don't know. Um, We have to see how your body is going to do. And, you know, throughout my fertility treatment, I went through therapy and I will say one of the biggest lessons that I learned in therapy, I applied in that moment which is you have, you cannot control things, number one, but you also kind of have to stay in the present and not what if the situation, because at that moment I thought, well, what if it comes back? What if he can't fix it? You know? And so I would also say, you know, to anyone who's going through this, it's, it's really, really hard to be told that you have this condition, but it's also really hard to, to know that like you can't hundred percent fix it. There is a percentage of range, by the way, of the success of these procedures. And again, this is from NIH. Um, and the percentage range is around 58% to 97%. So it depends. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of a broad range. So, so that's why he said, I can't guarantee because it really does depend on the severity of the scarring to my understanding. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. This is based on my conversation with my doctor and my own research and my experience. But, um, you know, so I encourage anyone who's going through this to talk to your doctor about what your percentage is. He didn't tell me my own percentage. He just said, we'll have to see. He said, there's a good chance we can, you know, fix it, but I can't guarantee it. So, um, so that's kind of what happened, the procedure. And then, um, I took the estrogen. I went back two weeks later, we did it again, two weeks later, we did it again. You know, it was kind of an incremental process. It was a lot of waiting to see what would happen. And, um, so we went to that final appointment and I was like holding my breath because essentially that last appointment was to see if we got it all, number one, and number two, if it had come back. Um, And so I was like, you know, we're doing the normal thing. It sort of felt like almost autopilot at this point. And he, you know, I'm looking at the screen and I'm, I'm not seeing any scarring and I'm like, oh my God, like, I don't see it. I don't see that cobweb structure that I had been seeing for those last three appointments. And he looked at me after you know, he was done. He couldn't kind of tell me during because he wanted to make sure. And he sat down and he looked at me and he said, we got it all. It's not coming back. And I was, I was like in tears, like, Oh, are we finally here? So sorry. (laughs) And and at this point, 
you've gone through seven embryos and obviously you have your well, daughter. A total of 14 transfers. Oh uh, my gosh. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, this was right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So this was, this was a really like, and then that four years and then the four losses in a year. So yeah, it had been almost I didn't you know, realize so you had long. already transferred the second uh, round of, okay. Wow. Yeah. Sorry if I wasn't clear on that. Yeah. So we had our, so, so we had one embryo left. After, oh my gosh. After, yeah. So we were, so this was our last. So that's why after the four lots, so I'll go, I'll go back to calculate. So it was a total that the last seven embryos, it was two that were negative four that were losses. Oh, okay. And wow. One remaining embryo. You made that clear. I think I just wasn't following. Okay, no, that's okay. Like, yeah. Cause your first round, you had your daughter and then you went right. through the five, went right? Through the, went through the, the six. six remaining. Yeah. That's and then right. those were all negative. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that is definitely a tear, tear jerking moment. Yeah. And I feel like at the same time, it was like that feeling of hope, like it kind of reinforced, you know, maybe my, maybe my endocrinologist was right. Maybe this is the guy who's going to help me. Maybe this is a new start, sort of a re, you know, hitting like reboot on your computer. Yeah. <laughs> but with your body. Um, and so he, but he did say to me, I remember he put his hand on my knee, you know, and, you know, and of course in a respectful way and just said, you know, I hope that this means that you can try to go have a baby now, you know, and just, you know, he's like one of those people, these doctors that do these kinds of things, you know, I mean, all of them, the endocrinologists, they're all so vested in your success, you know? And I remember going back to my endocrinologist after this appointment. Um, well, obviously I went out to the waiting room after the procedure and I told my husband and we're both in tears and he's like, Aww. you know, and he's, he's kind of a modest guy. Like he doesn't show his emotion, you know, he's a guy. Um, but you know, he was happy and he was hopeful and we, you know, but at the same time, I was still really superstitious because of all the things that had happened. Um, so we went back to the endocrinologist. I think it was like the following week and we sat down with him and I, you know, we're like eye to eye. I'm like, what, what are, what's our next step here? I've got one embryo left. And he said, um, he said, I need to talk to my board about our options because he didn't want to put me through another round of transfer. And that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted him to just say, okay, let's get pregnant, you know? Yeah. Um, but he, he knew that I only had one left and he, we had already at this point, because of the losses, I was basically handed information about surrogacy and I was on board and to anyone who has had, you know, has gone through surrogacy and, or has adopted, like I was a hundred percent on board at this point, I just wanted to have another baby and to, uh, you know, to give my daughter a, a sibling and, and I just, um, I just wanted to do whatever it took. And so he had to go back to his board because he had to determine if we could do another transfer with IVF. And so he did, and he got back to me a couple of days later, you know, I'm holding my breath again. <laughs> and he said, they've given us one more shot because of your, you know, sort of rare case of all of the things that have happened to you. And because of this condition, you know, now being resolved, thankfully, I was in that 97%. Um, and he said, you know, we're going to try again, but if this does not work, we have to look at surrogacy. We cannot go through any more 
you know, stimulation and, and everything. Yeah. I love that. Amanda, I don't know about you. I think you did too. I know that in my situation and it was different, but like I had had the numerous losses, then we had transferred the genetically normal embryo. And my RE said the same thing, Lisa, they were like, we have to go to our board. I don't, we don't want to just keep doing the same thing for the same result. And Amanda, were you in the same situation? I was. Yeah. And that's when really like embryo adoption kind of was put on the table for us. Right. Well, um, yeah. And when someone says I have to go to my board, (laughs) you sort of think to yourself, (laughs) okay, you know, why don't they know the answer? But, um, but I'm grateful obviously for him to have those resources and to, to be really sure that we have, you know, a shot again, it was not a guarantee. So we did our um, stimulation or trigger, we did our transfer and all the things. And, um, and then it was the two week wait and we did the blood work and I wore my good vibes only <laughs> and played actually, you know, throughout this process. And this is kind of just anecdotal, but um, I played the song, you know, Michael Buble, obviously, you know who he is. Yeah. Um, the song haven't met you yet. Um, and I played that song on the way to every transfer (laughs) because we had done so many, I became sort of superstitious about the process itself, you know, like athletes have, you know, like they wear certain socks and things, you know? Um, and, and I think you kind of become superstitious in this process too. So anyway, um, so we, we did the transfer, waited the two weeks and then we got the positive and I was like, oh my gosh, wonderful. Great. But of course I was waiting for the other shoe to drop at this point because of the losses. And I know you guys can relate. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like that hopeful, but at the same time on, you know, sort of cautious, cautiously hopeful. And I, um, when we got the call for the second one, it was, it was still positive and the numbers were doubling and then the numbers were doubling again and then they were doubling again. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, but I still wasn't letting myself be happy about it because I was so afraid and my anxiety throughout this process was definitely high. And, um, and I, I definitely advocate for therapy and making sure that you're taking care of yourself because it's so exhausting. Um, so anyway, so we, we got to that, you know, like 10 week mark and I was able to see everything on the screen and it was still, you know, a confirmation that it was, there was like a, a baby in there and um, we graduated and I was still at that point hesitant to even be happy. I was, I was relieved, but also still anxious. And then it took me until I was honestly like five months pregnant to tell people because I, I mean, at this point I was showing um, because I had already had a kid. And so like your body obviously, um, you know, shows quicker with the second. And so Um, so yeah, it was, it was an exhaustive process, but I ended up, I I did have some bleeding at 22 weeks, but everything else was okay. And we delivered, um, I had more complications after my, my delivery. I had another retained placenta a week postpartum, um, which was awful. And I, excuse me, I actually ended up having to go back to, um, the doctor a week postpartum because I was having stomach pain and 
not to get off tangent, but just to finish that story, basically went in, they confirmed that it was retained placenta and they had to do an, another emergency DNC. Oh um, my gosh. That's so I, traumatic, especially. I know because I just, I have a one week old, old at home, you know? Oh. And so I actually ended up hemorrhaging a liter of blood and was in the hospital for two days. And I'm like, what more could possibly be thrown at me in my life? <clears throat> but, um, I actually ended up having to go back to, thankfully everything was okay. They stabilized, they removed, they had to put a, insert a balloon to stop the bleeding. Um, and they told me I had to sign a form, um, talk about trauma, but like I had to sign a form, um, after this hemorrhage happened while I'm in the hospital, I'm still on like, you know, pain meds and all these things. And they were like monitoring my iron because it was really low. And she's like, when we take the balloon out, they had to wait 24 hours to take the balloon out. Um, when we take the balloon out, if you start bleeding and hemorrhaging again, we're going to have to do an emergency hysterectomy. Or excuse me, hysterectomy. Yeah, I, I, like, I assume oh. that was coming. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so right. Traumatic. I'm sure you've heard that too. So are, are you, were you at this point, Lisa? And I mean, nobody really knows, but were you and yeah. your husband like, okay, we're having, we really are so we're having two children and we are done <laughs> after eight. Yeah. Plus well, years. actually you, it's funny. You say that not like ironic, not haha, but, um, so yeah, so I ended everything ended up being okay. I stabilized. I didn't hemorrhage again, thank God. And I was able to go home like 48 hours later, but I ended up going back to the specialist again, the one that helped me with Asherman's because he knows about everything. And I said to him, do you think I have like scarring again? Like, is this possible? Cause, cause scarring in the uterus and Asherman's itself can actually cause a lot of pain as well. It can cause significantly painful periods. And he was concerned that I would have a recurrence of scarring, but I got a letter from my OB who was this blunt Brit. I just she's just like the most wonderful person. She actually ended up passing away a few years later. Um, but I got a letter from her. I've never gotten a letter from my OB before. <laughs> like, really, like, I really am. I really am special. <laughs> she sent me a letter. And at first, I was really upset by this letter. But um, in hindsight, I, I now look back and I thank her for it. But she sent me a letter to say, I don't want you to have another hysteroscopy because of the risk of hemorrhaging to me. Um, number one, she said, cause she thought I was going to, I was considering having another hysteroscopy to have another baby because of everything I had gone through to have my second, yeah. um, after the, the miscarriage and then having the procedures, she thought that's why I was considering it, but I was considering it because I was afraid it was going to cause pain and more problems for us. Um, and for me anyway, so she sent me a letter and she said, I would advise you against having another hysteroscopy because of the risk of hemorrhage again, because of what had happened to me twice. And also because she was afraid that if I got pregnant again, that it would, because of my retained placenta history and my complications of hemorrhaging both times and almost dying the second time, basically, um, she said, we don't want you basically said, we don't want you to have any more kids. Yeah. Yeah. So she said, we're, we are, she actually said in this letter, we're concerned that the placenta might attach to your bladder. 
Mm-hmm. And then you would not only, she said it would risk your life basically. Yes. Yeah. And, and that would, was they, this- she said you would have to choose between the baby and you. And yes. they, they would a hundred percent choose you because you know, whatever. And of course, like I would choose the baby but, you yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, because we're mothers. This- that's what we do. We put everything what- for these kids. Right. Was this a high risk OB or was this? Yeah. Yes. So I actually, because, so for my second pregnancy, I was actually seeing a maternal fetal medicine doc and an OB, which I think you're familiar with. And that's your background to my understanding. Is that right? It is. That's why I asked. So our MFM physicians send these letters out a lot. (laughs) Um, Are you a physician assistant or what is your, what is your, I should have asked you that at the beginning. I'm sorry. No, absolutely. I just, it's, I'm, I, it's just funny listening to the other side of it. Right. Cause I'm the one that signs off on all these letters. Right. Um, You're like, yes, that makes sense. (laughs) No. So I'm in, I'm on the operation side. So I, um, I employ and manage physicians and, um, specifically all OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine. So anytime wow. a letter goes out, um, my, so you know about these letters. <laughs> yeah. And it's just funny hearing it from the patient's perspective, but these physicians yeah. to your point, they get so anxious, um, for, for the patient's health and exactly like what you said, they right, don't but really she really me. did advocate for my health. I mean, yeah. she was saying to me, you're risking your life in doing more than you've already done. You have two kids And of course I should say this hundred percent, you know, a million times over, I am grateful that I was able to even have one child, not, you know, and to have two after all of this, I am, he's my miracle. He is my number, like lucky number seven. Um, Oh, that's, my daughters are lucky number seven too. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So you have a son and a daughter. I have a son and a daughter. And I I remember my mom saying, you have one of each. You're, you know, you're so lucky. Right. And I thought to myself, you know, like, but what if I want to have another one? Like, why is this doctor telling me I can't? And, and I will say after she passed, so she passed away. So my son is actually now four. It's been four years since all this. I'm just beginning this sort of journey of being able to share my story. And that's why I'm, I've become, you know, women's health advocate because I'm so deeply passionate about helping other women who have gone through this because I don't want you to struggle. I, I, you know, in my struggles, I wish that I knew about Asherman's. I wished that I knew that it was even an option to see a specialist, to talk to them about this. Um, and Asherman's just in general is not discussed. Uh, I feel like this is not, and typically women who have gone through fertility treatment, for example, I, I, to my understanding, according to NIH, 1.5% of HSG procedure they in only in that 1.5% chance that they find it in an HSG. So, so this is, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Really you, underdiagnosed. They have yeah. to find it in other ways, typically with a hysteroscopy. And do you so feel easy. like, do you feel like the increasing, like the prevalence of IVF and infertility treatment has clearly increased over the last 10 years? Yeah. And because you know, we're doing procedures on the uterus, which is such a sensitive tissue anyways, like we're doing all these procedures. Do you feel yeah. like that increases the chance of Asherman's and, and maybe why it's a little bit more prevalent now? You know, like I said, I'm not a medical doctor. I can only speak to my experience, but I will say I have heard that it's become more common from people who have gone through 
fertility treatment and specifically those who, so for example, like if you guys have any friends and I know I do that have had C-section, even C-section is considered to be traumatic to the uterus. Oh, great. Um, yeah. So it will not to say, just because, well, I will say that doesn't just because you've had a C-section doesn't mean you're going to have Asherman's. It just, I think it raises the probability, you know, the possibility. So if you are then experiencing as a result, let's say, for example, you had a C-section and then you go and try to get pregnant again, this is my own, you know, thought, but if you start to have recurrent pregnancy loss, or you've had a history of DNC, for example, or history of recurrent miscarriage, talk to your doctor. Like there might be something else going on that they just haven't thought of or, and, or for example, like I, I, you know, maybe Catherine, you can speak to this, but do OBs talk about this in their conversations with patients who, who come to them? Let's say for someone who hasn't gone through fertility treatment, you know, do they talk about Asherman's with recurrent I, and like you, Lisa, I'll talk from my experience, but I yeah. manage 65. So <laughs> I, I think I have a good, a good grasp. Um, no, absolutely not. Do they, no. they, in my own experience too, um, I was a patient of my own OBs, um, GYNs that I managed. So I felt like I got special treatment and could kind of push the buttons a little bit, but yeah. no, they don't. And I think that's why it's so incredible that you're a women's health advocate. Um, a big reason Amanda and I do this podcast is like, there we're the only people that are going to really, you know, yeah. push and advocate for ourselves because they just have so many patients. I mean, my physicians are seeing 30 to 40 patients a day in 15 yeah. minute time blocks. And yeah. as much as maybe they want to, the capacity just isn't there. So I think it's so important that you're advocating yeah. for this. Yeah. And I don't fault physicians and I don't fault endocrinologists and, you know, OBs specifically, you know, for not knowing, and I don't fault my endocrinologist. You know, I was, he actually said to me, this is how vested he was in my process. You know, he said to me after my fourth loss, before I saw the specialist, he said, I'm not, he was getting ready to retire. And he said to me, I'm not leaving this practice until we have you get you another baby, you know, like, <laughs> we, we are, one way or another, if it's surrogacy or otherwise, like we're going to, we're going to help you have another baby or adoption or whatever, you know, he that. wanted to help me. And so I don't fault that, you know, 18 minutes or whatever they get with every patient. Yeah. Um, and, and it's all just sort of the information they can gather in that time. And it's funny because I have, a really good friend that's actually a radiologist and um, I help her a lot with her stuff and she's advocating for breast health. And she often talks about how um, specifically breast cancer, you know, just in general, she only gets a period, you know, 18 minutes to sit with a patient to talk mm -hmm. about what's happening. And so it's not necessarily that they don't want to talk about it. It's more like they can only fit so much in. And so getting, taking it at that extra step, like asking your, your OB, for example, um, if you're just beginning this process or, or talking to your endocrinologist and saying, have we thought of anything else? Like I mentioned earlier, you know, I wish I had said that. Have we, have, is there any condition, for example, Asherman syndrome, what do you know about it? You know, I have a history of a DNC or I have, you know, I'm having these recurrent losses. Um, I have a good friend also that mentioned to me that, um, a friend of hers was going through recurrent 
losses and had a DNC after delivery. And so she was starting to wonder if there was something else wrong and she had never heard of Asherman's. And so, yes, I agree. I mean, it's up to us to sort of inform and spread this message because as much as these specialists want to help people, they're very busy. And I guarantee you, he was probably seeing, you know, 60 patients in a, in a day and, and doing maybe, I think he only did these procedures two days a week. And it took me like six months basically to get this all completed. So, yeah. 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 And, and yeah, I, it's just, I, I do want to, I took some notes. And so it sounds like we might be near the end of um, your very, very long story to, to mom of two, but I wanted to ask you, and I want to just make sure we, we do touch on it in the podcast. And I know neither one of us are medical professionals. Um, did anyone ever share to you that the chance of getting Asherman's or the chance of scar tissue is greater with a DNC postpartum, like right after delivery versus like a DNC, say at five to 10 weeks? Did anybody share that information with you? No, they did not. Um, I will say with retained placenta and my emergency DNC, they did tell me, my OB told me um, that I was at higher risk for retained placenta with my second child, therefore, you know, potential DNC. Um, it's, it's only like 7%, it was only a 7% chance at higher risk than the normal person, you know? Yeah. Um, so I already knew when I was pregnant with my second, I was honestly very anxious about having another retained placenta. And when she struggled to get it out, I thought to myself, oh my God, here we go again. You know, she's literally taking pieces of the placenta and putting them on to together on the table, trying oh. to puzzle piece it together. Oh wow. Yeah. So they did imaging and they didn't see it, but I knew this would happen. And so, so yes, in the case specifically, when you have a retained placenta um, and you've had that before, there is a chance for DNC, but specifically to your question, um, I don't know the answer. I, I certainly could look and, and get back to you, but. Well, um, no, the only reason yeah. I asked is because I, I remember when I was doing a little bit of research about Asherman's, because of course yeah. I was faced with the question time and time again, do you want to do a DNC or do you want to do the medication or right. do you want to try to miscarry naturally? Um, and I, in, in my research, which was Google um, searching and texting my, my doctors was um, I just, I found that um, the scarring and Asherman's was more common when a DNC was done either in like the third trimester or right post right after giving birth just because of it, it's it's larger and yeah. um I, compared to like if you're going to have a dnc early on i don't think a dnc is probably good for your uterus at all in any any stance but i was just right. curious if they talked to you about that um since you were ultimately diagnosed yeah um no, and I, I can't speak to that, but I will say um, in my research on NIH and also Cleveland Clinic commented on this as well, they did say that the causes, um, potential causes of um, Asherman's were, you know, C-section, as we said earlier, um, PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, and having or having an infection in the uterus. Um, cervical cancer was another one that was mentioned. Um, which I thought was interesting, you know, any trauma to the uterus makes sense. Um, and then obviously, um, having recurrent losses 
predisposes you to it because of that potential incomplete miscarriage or buildup of scar tissue in the uterus that maybe doesn't become resolved. And then you try to get pregnant, like what happened to me, where it was in that specific spot where the embryo is trying to implant. Wow. Makes a lot of sense. It does, yeah. I'm like, now I feel like I want to talk to my OB before I do my next transfer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's so important to be informed. And I think it's, it's really, there's nothing wrong with asking the question, even if you feel like, you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, asking too many questions. My time is limited, but like, I think it's worth it. You know, is it possible that this could be the issue? And number one, you know, advocate for yourself in, in any medical situation, always speak up. If you feel like you're not being heard by your doctor, ask to talk to someone else, connect with someone else, find another endocrinologist. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think, um, you know, I think doing your research, advocating for yourself. And then really like the big thing is if you feel like in your gut and we always, you know, as women, we always listen to our intuition. Um, my gut feeling knew, you know, after that fourth loss that something was wrong and I was right. So follow that gut and, and trust it. I love that. Thank you so much, Lisa, for just sharing your whole story and being a women's advocate and explaining Asherman's to us and just um, giving us all the statistics. And I feel like I've learned so much and I know our audience definitely um, is going to take a, a lot um, out of what you've shared. So is there any last minute? I know you kind of ended it with like such great wisdom, but is there any other last minute things you want to share with us? Sure. Um, I think just briefly, um, in addition to being an advocate for infertility, I also am for mental health. And I would just say that overall, you know, when you go through the fertility process and in trying to get pregnant, um, really mental health is something that isn't addressed as often. I feel like, you know, they, when you go to these appointments, they check your blood and they check, you know, your lining and everything. Um, and, and then you go through these things and, and, and with the losses as well, you know, no one's really from, you know, the clinic itself and I don't fault them again, but they're not asking kind of how you're doing, you know, and I think it's important to make sure that you're taking time for your mental health through this process. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking alone time and, you know, or, or time, you know, self-care time, whatever it is. Um, and find a therapist that can help you through this, because I think, um, that's really ultimately what helped me through my process. And I'm so grateful because now I feel like I can, you know, essentially pay it forward to other women who may be struggling. And I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it, Lisa.